5, and we're going to start, oh boy, we could, let's just start at verse 1 again. We've, we've talked the first eight verses quite at, at length in previous messages, so we'll just kind of rush through them tonight if you don't mind, because our goal is to get to where we left off in verse 10. In verse 1 it says, for we know, we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this we don't want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal, in other words, death bound, bound to die, this body is going to die. But it says what's going to happen is your body is bound to die, but it's going to be swallowed up in life. What is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared us for this, very purpose is God who gave us the spirit as a pledge. Therefore, being always of good courage, always of good courage, and knowing that while we're at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. So this is our ambition. Whether we're at home or we're absent from the body, we are going to be pleasing to God. That's a good ambition, isn't it? Something to, to think about, something to devote your life to. He says, this is our ambition. Whether or not we're at home or we're absent, we're going to be pleasing to God. And then he says this, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he's done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, for we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. This is a big thought. We're talking about Judgment Day, right? What you need to know about Judgment Day, what to pack, what to expect. I'd say most of us, if we were stopped on the street and somebody said, tell me about Judgment Day, many people would freeze up and try to slowly change the conversation or just walk away. Because most of the people that bring up Judgment Day on the street are kind of wacky anyways, aren't they? But if you were asked, what's going to happen on that day? I don't want you to be without an answer. There's certain things I don't know. There's certain things I don't know about what it looks like. There's certain things I don't know about exactly the process that it's carried out. But there are certain things you must know about that great and notable day. Because if you don't know now, it's going to be too late to figure things out by the time you're standing there. And I think that the scripture, you know, the scripture says clearly that we should have an answer for everybody that asks about the hope that lies within. Do you have hope tonight? Do you have hope? that you can stand in front of the judge of all creation and, 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 and make it through and be happy about that it is your hope in Jesus. Because if not, if not, ignoring it doesn't make it go away. We certainly need to know, why is it that I hear the word judgment day and I don't freak out? Or if you do freak out, maybe let's see what the word has to say so that that fear will be put to, to rest once and for all when you find out, where your hope lies and why you believe what you believe. He says here, we know that we all must appear. We know that we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he's done, whether good or bad. To be recompensed means to be paid back. He says we all must appear. Now, 
when we read that, it sounds like it, it's, it's saying we all got to show up at court date. You know, we all got to show up. You have to be there. You can't skip this day. But if you study this out, what he's really saying, if you read the original Greek, it's not just showing up. And this ties in in context to what he says later because it's not just about showing up, but really what he's saying is we all must be revealed We all must be laid bare. We all will be examined openly before God. Which is important. Because he's talking in this chapter and some chapters before and after about some apostles who are putting up a front. He's talking about some people that are fake. He's talking about some people that have put on a flashy show but aren't genuine. And he's trying to tell them, listen, I'm not trying to impress you. I'm not even trying to please you. I'm trying to please him. And he goes, we've all got to stand before him one day, and we will be laid bare before him. So it won't matter what kind of show I put on. It won't matter how I dressed. It won't matter how much you liked me, because in the end, we're going to be seen as we are. So that's why in a couple verses, he says, we're made manifest before God. Do you know what manifest means? Manifest means to be completely uncovered, to be revealed. So he says, we are manifested before God. And he says, we're also manifest in your consciences. (laughs) What a thing to be manifest before God, to be completely open and, and, and bare before him. You know, I trust that when we read this, you don't say, well, man, that doesn't sound like me at all. I trust that you understand that you have a relationship with God. If you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, you know, you're not just known, but you're loved. You're not just known, but you're accepted. One of the greatest things, I've said this before, but one of the coolest things about marriage is that at some point, the whole vibe you gave off to impress this girl wears off. At some point, they see you at your ugliest. They smell you at your smelliest. They know you for who you are. You can't keep the act up forever. Now, I remember, I don't remember who said this, but I think it was a friend of my sister's. She said she would get up early in the morning before her husband woke up and put makeup on so he'd never have to see her without makeup. I thought, that sounds terrible. (laughs) What an existence, right? I don't know how long that's going to last. Come on, husband. At some point, say, you know, I love you. You don't have to do this. I'm not going to judge them. That's their marriage, not my marriage. But I know that we, you know, with my wife and I, we haven't been married for long, uh, but we've seen every side of each other. You, you, you see, you've seen every side of your personality. The, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm the God's gift to women. You all need to get to know me. That doesn't last long. That's just, right? Here's the wonderful thing. Here's the wonderful thing in marriage is that all of a sudden you discover that you're known by somebody more than you've been known by anybody, and they still love you. That is a shock. I I mean, you still love me? I mean, you love me? You still think I'm attractive after seeing me before I take a shower? You still think this? That's, that's That's something wonderful. And it's nothing compared to your relationship with God. Because the Bible says that he knows everything. We've talked about this before. It says he numbered the hairs on your head. 
He knows every little detail. He knows every, he knows things about you you don't know about yourself. If you and God were to both take quizzes, what do you know about you? He would win. There are things you don't know that he knows. And so if anybody's got an excuse not to love me, it's God. And yet he does. That says something big. Boy, when you embrace that, the Bible says in 1 John, we've come to know and believe. And because those things got to go together, not just know that God loves me. It says we come to know and believe the love of God that he has for us. You've got to know it, but you've also got to believe that love. You've got to buy into it. He loves me. And sometimes we still live a life that kind of says, you know, we, we live in, or think in such a way or even pray in such a way as if we're hiding something from God, like Adam and Eve in the garden, hiding behind a bush. God plays along, goes, where are you? As if he can't see. Come on. Hiding behind a bush. They obviously were new at this whole sinning thing. This is not a bad thing. I think there are times when I recognize in my own prayer life where I'll just stop in the middle of a prayer and go, what, what am I doing here? Am I putting on a show for him? Am I hiding the true things behind the plant? Because he sees what he sees. He sees what I haven't said. Jesus says, you know, don't try to be like the, the, the Pharisees who think that because of their fancy prayers, God hears them. He says, don't try to be like the Gentiles who think if they use more words, God will hear them. And really don't think that when you're talking to God, there are certain things if you don't mention, he doesn't know, right? You know, we have a little one-year-old, and it's cool having a one-year-old. It's cool having toddlers around. He's not quite a toddler, but, you know, having toddlers are great because they put their hands over their eyes, and they think you can't see them. (laughs) And this is, you know, you can't see me. I'm invisible right now. That's the superpower that goes away, you know? And sometimes I think that's our prayer life. We're just, or our life that we're living, we think we've got a certain church attitude and then a home attitude. Putting our hand over our eyes going, you can't see this, can you? And yet, he knows you better than you know yourself. So is that cause to be really scared? Is that cause to be very happy? Because on judgment day, when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, you will be laid bare. There's not a part of you that will be hidden before his eyes. There's not a part of you that's hidden now. But there will be an accounting of your life. Now, why is that not a bad thing? We're going to look in the scripture. I'd like you to turn to the book. Hold your place in 2 Corinthians if you could. But turn to the book of Hebrews. I'd like you to turn to chapter 10. We're going to go to a few places in Scripture that, that lay a basis um, for where your faith and your hope should lie. You may know this Scripture in 1 John that says, We have confidence on the day of judgment. We have confidence on the day of judgment. We're not freaked out about judgment day. We have confidence on the day of judgment because as he is, so are we in this world. That's a big statement. As Jesus is, so are we in this world. Now, we're going to break down some walls on either side of this issue. I think there's people in in both ditches here. We're going to break down some walls 
And if there's any legalism remaining in you, I pray that that be broken down. If there's any part of you that says, well, life just doesn't matter, whatever, whatever, and you just think that just go through life and what you do in this life doesn't have anything to do with what happens there, then I pray that gets broken down as well. You know, I think um, we, when you think about it, you think of somebody who's very strongly legalistic, you know, very strict. We often think that that person has set a higher bar for us than everybody else. But in reality, they've set a lower bar than everybody else. I'll tell you why. They haven't set the bar too high. They've set it too low. Here's why. Because God's standard for being able to have eternal life and abiding with him forever is nothing less than perfection. There's nothing less than perfection. The Bible says, how many of us know what righteousness means? Righteousness means you have a right relationship with God. In his eyes, there is no flaw. You are right. And that's a very important little phrase when we stand before the judgment seat and we get judged whether we're righteous or unrighteous, right? So righteousness means that as far as God's concerned, I am without flaw. I'm right. I am just. I'm in right relationship with him. I'm not guilty. Justified. Justified means that you are without sin, that you are just before him. Now that's what I'd like to be on judgment day, right? I'd like him to say, you've been declared righteous. You have been declared just. You've been justified. You have been declared not guilty and righteous before me. That's what I want to hear. So what do I base that on? Because if I base that on whether or not I've lived a really good life, then I'm on some shaky ground because... The scripture says, not me, not my grandma, but the scripture says, there is none righteous, no, not one. It says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is what? Death. There are no loopholes to that. He doesn't say the wages of a lot of sin is death. He doesn't say the wages of really bad sin is death. The wages of one sin would be death. So the standard that God sets and the only one that's ever met it was Jesus Christ. So here, if you if you really, if you're really tough and you're really strict and you think that, well, we just, you know, I mean, I I just think you're going to have to live a pretty good life to get to heaven. Or if you say things like, I wonder if I'll make it. I wonder if I, I, I think I'll just just barely get into heaven. By your standard, heaven's going to be a very lonely place because it, it'll have all the cool things. It'll have this, the beautiful city. It'll have the gates. It'll have the streets of gold. The one thing it won't have is any humans in it because all have sinned. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous. No, not one. He says in the Old Testament, all of your righteousness is as filthy rags. So if your standard is you've got to live a good life, I'm sorry, we're not getting in. We've missed it. I've missed it. You've missed it. And I do believe we've got to live a good life. I believe that's, that, that if you're a born-again believer, you're going to bear fruit in your life. I believe that that's part of your life. But that's not what got you saved. That's a result of you being saved. Here's the deal. Let's look in Hebrews chapter 10. Let's figure out what we can expect on Judgment Day. 
He says in verse 1 of chapter 10, For the law, since it has only a shadow of good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect perfect those who draw near. This is talking about the old covenant sacrifices in which they'd, they'd kill some animals and the blood of those animals would cover their sins for a time. He said, but it may have covered, but it would never make perfect. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have a consciousness of sins. In other words, if that sacrifice could cover you for the rest of your life, you wouldn't have to do it every year. One would be good, and you'd be like, I'm covered, I'm set. But he says you had to keep offering sacrifices because you continually knew that you were sinful. Verse 3, but in those sacrifices there was a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible, impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. I know Kim will remember this a little while ago. A few years ago we talked about, we read from this. I believe it was when we were studying the book of Hebrews. And I use this example and maybe it will help you. How many of you have been in a junior high lately? Anybody? All right, five. So you're familiar with Axe body spray. Because I've met some junior high boys. And the commercials lie, guys. The commercials lie. There is no replacement for a shower. See, the lie is that if you have not showered, you have a magic potion. You just spray liberally the Axe body spray, and everyone falls in love with you. But it's not true. Because Axe body spray, and I'm not trying to tear down one particular product, but, but no body spray can really take away the smell. It only covers it up with arguably a worse smell, another smell. <laughs> The blood of bulls and goats and rams in the old covenant never took away the sin. It covered the sin. And it's different from the sacrifice of Jesus in that way. It says this. So because it only covered, it was never able to make them perfect in conscience. And he says, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering you've not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it's written of me to do your will, O God. Who said that? Jesus said that. I've come to do your will, O God. And did he do it? He did it to the full. It says this, after saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you've not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. Now listen, this is where you really need to start paying attention. Verse 10, by this will, we have been sanctified. Now what does that mean? To be sanctified means to be made, literally, to be made holy. We have past tense. Now, you know there's a sanctification of your flesh that's still taking place, right? You know that you're going through, the Bible says in, in, at, at the end of Paul's letter to Thessalonians, it says, um, may the Lord, may God sanctify you completely, spirit, soul, and body until the day of Jesus Christ. We know that 
he's constantly changing us from glory to glory, from grace to grace, right? We know that we're growing. But as far as your status with God is concerned, this is in the past. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. How many times? For, for who? For who? For all. And that, that can mean two things. It means for all people, and it means for all time. Now, we know that one of the, the important things that we have to believe, and the Scripture says it over and over again, is while Jesus paid the price for everyone, not everyone receives that gift. You have to believe, right? You reject Jesus, it says in Hebrews, it's the same book, it says those that reject that sacrifice no longer have a sacrifice for sins. In other words, Jesus paid the price for you, but your choice, whether you're going to accept it or reject it, if you reject it, you're left standing on your own two feet, and they're pretty shaky. There going to be two types of people on Judgment Day. Well, there are probably more than two, but let's just break it down to two. There are going to be people that stand before the king and say, thank God Jesus paid my debt. And there are going to be those that said, I didn't need him. And when he looks at them, I'm sorry. But if you rejected what Jesus offered, you rejected his free gift, your own record's not good enough. God is a loving God. You know, people say, why does God, why does a loving God send people to hell? I'm going to tell you the truth. That, that is so, that's so backwards. God is the one that loved you enough to make every, every way possible outside of forcing you to keep you out of hell. He's the one that gave his own son to die for you so you wouldn't have to go there. He's the one that made every concession possible. He did everything that was necessary so you wouldn't have to go there. You know, he is a God that still gave you a free will and you still could reject or accept him. That's your choice. Stop blaming that on God. He loved you enough to provide a way of escape. He loved you enough to pay your check. If you reject that, that's not his fault. What a wonderful Savior we have. We have a loving God who loved you enough. He said, by this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So how's that different from the sacrifices he's talking about in the Old Testament? Those Old Testament sacrifices that only cover you for a little bit. Jesus his sacrifices once for all. It says this, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. You know why the priest never sat down? Because if they sat down, that signified that the work was done. And they were never done. Because you guys kept sinning. I'm just imagining what it would be like for them, right? I wish I could sit down, guys, but I know tomorrow you're going to do something stupid. My work is never done. But it says, Jesus having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. His work is done. Then it says this, 
waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time. Boy, look at that. By one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. For one offering has perfected those who are being sanctified for all time. That's big, isn't it? So what makes you perfect before God? Jesus. As the old hymn says, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. There's no other ground you can rightly stand on. It says in verse 15, and the Holy Spirit also testifies to us why? We read just earlier in 2 Corinthians 5 that he gave us his spirit as a pledge of our adoption. So if you've got the Holy Spirit in you, he testifies that you're children of God saying, this is the covenant. Now, where did he testify this? This is out of the Old Testament, talking and looking forward to the new. He said, this is the covenant that I will make with them. This is the covenant that we're living in right now. This is the new covenant he's talking about. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws upon their heart and on their mind I will write them. Wow. So before it was an external thing. Now it's on the inside of you. His ways, his laws, his, 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 his way of living has been imprinted on you. You know right from wrong. You know the way that God's called you to walk. And he then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now this is very important because on the day of judgment, he keeps his word. And on the day of judgment, you're thinking, how am I going to look? The Lord put it in covenant, which has been signed with his own blood, which has been guaranteed. He said, I won't remember your sins again. I won't bring them up again. I won't Recall them. Your sins and your lawless deeds, they're not going to come up. That's why when believers stand before the judge, that's not a scary thing. You will give an account. Yes, you will. And we'll get into that in a bit. I want to establish this thought first, and then we'll get into, well, what in the world am I giving an account for? We'll talk about that in a moment. But first, let's settle this. He said, I won't bring these things up. I will remember them no more. Go ahead to the book of Romans. I'm going to be very careful tonight not to step outside of what the scripture says. Can I do that? And that way you don't say this is his opinion, but you know we're reading from the scripture and we're going to read it in context as well. Because I think it's important that you know that this is not somebody's opinion. And quite frankly, I have no interest in trying to say something that will tickle your ears and make you feel better. I, I do want you to be comforted by the word of God itself. I've got no problem. I've preached at funerals where I believed like 10% of the people there knew Jesus. So it wasn't really my, in my interest to tell everybody, don't worry, you're all fine. I wanted to tell them the truth. So I'm not afraid to tell you if, you're, if you should be concerned. But right now, I believe the scripture is so important to tell you that, you that you have cause to be confident on the day of judgment, that there's reason for hope. And I believe that's the goal tonight is that you walk away with some hope, not in yourself, but in Jesus. In Romans chapter 4, 
Romans chapter 4 is speaking mostly about Abraham. In verse 22, it says, Therefore it was also credited to him as righteousness. What was credited to him as righteousness? His faith. Now not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited, as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over. Delivered over to what? Delivered over to death. For our transgressions. Transgressions, you know what that is, right? It's when you broke the law. That's your sin. He was delivered over to death for your sin. He was raised up because of our justification. Do you know what justification means? You've now been made right before God. Chapter 5, verse 1. You know that these chapters weren't in there in the original, right? Do you ever write letters like that? Do you write letters and put chapter 4, verse 17? No, you just write a letter, don't you? We have these chapters to help us you know, have a reference point so we can look things up. But this was one letter. So, so don't just stop reading when you hit a new chapter. Let's just keep reading. He says, because this connects. If it starts with therefore, you better believe it. it has something to do with what we just read. Therefore, having been, past tense, justified by faith, we have, present tense, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you hear that? We have peace with God. Do you believe that? I hope you do. It's kind of a silly thing to just look at the Bible and say, nope. I don't want to sit, I don't want to sit in that chair and say, yeah, I see it there, but it must mean something else in Greek. In, in English it says yes, but in Greek it means no. Don't try to cop out here. He says very clearly, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. Not only this, but we exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. Perseverance, proven character. Proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts to the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone might even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than. Now you hear that word. Hear that phrase. Much more than. I want you to embrace that phrase much more. Because you've got to know that whatever Jesus did for you was much more than what was necessary for you. He, his grace abounds more, much more than, than, your, than your flaw, than your sin, than your rebellion, than your evil. His grace was much more. And it says much more than having now been justified by his blood. Why are we justified? We're justified by his blood. Having much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Do you know what wrath is? When I, <laughs> Kelly made a wrath face. Kelly can't make a wrath face. It's not in her nature. She tried. In, in our language, when we say wrath, we're usually talking about someone that's just so ticked off that they lost their cool. But you know that's not God. That's really not what the word wrath means. It doesn't mean somebody that's just really mad. 
wrath is the just response of a holy God to sin. Wrath is not when God's just like, that's it, and he starts kicking chairs over, and he's just like, I've had it with you. That's not what wrath is. The wrath of God is the proper response to sin. It's the proper judgment to sin. The wrath is the bad side of judgment. Do you understand? The reward might be the good side of judgment, but wrath is the negative side. Wrath means um, the wages of sin is death. Then the wrath of God says sin equals death, so therefore you've got to die. That's the proper judgment. Now I want you to see what it says. So we're talking about judgment right now. He says, we've been justified by his blood. That means when you stand before Jesus, you stand before him, justified, made perfect, made righteous. You've been justified by his blood. He says, we shall be. So this is the future. When do you think he's talking about? He's talking about that judgment day. On that day, if you've been justified by his blood, you will be saved much more. Thank God. You will be saved from the wrath of God through him. I want you to see what he's talking about because we're going to see in a moment. In fact, let's just keep reading for a moment. For if while we were enemies, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Thank God. If you, if you have time tonight, keep reading that Romans chapter 5. It'll build you up. I'm going to skip on to chapter 8 for a moment. I feel a little bit disappointed. We don't have time to read everything in between. But for the sake of time, in chapter 8 it says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Do you know what condemnation is? To be condemned means you've been found guilty and sentenced. To be condemned means you've been found guilty, Jared. You've been found guilty. The judge says you're guilty. You've been condemned. But it says there is now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh. In other words, the weakness of the law was not the law itself, but you. Your flesh was weak. But what the law could not do through the flesh, God did. I love that verse. Because, you know, I think about it this way. I like to to also translate it and, and put myself in there. What I could not do, weak as I was through the flesh, God did. What I couldn't do what I couldn't pay, what I could not make up for, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Do you know what that means? When God says, have you met the requirement of my law? Because of Jesus, he's going to say, it's been fulfilled in you. Who do, walk according to the fle- who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Thank God. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Now let's skip on ahead. I'd like to read everything in between, but for time's sake, let's skip on ahead. I'm trying to figure out where we should skip on ahead. It's so good. 
Isn't that the problem? Thank God. Let's, let's skip on ahead in verse 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for who? Us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. That means on judgment day and before then for that matter. Who's the lawyer on the other side? There's no other law. There's no prosecution in this courtroom. The, the one who judges you is God, right? So he plays the part of prosecution, of judge, of, of sentencer. He's, he plays all those parts. And says, so who else, who's left in the courtroom? Who's left on judgment day to say, Jared did, I saw him. Says, Jared, I pick on you because, well, you're sitting front and center. <sighs> Let that be a warning. Who's going to say, no, 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 you can't let Jared in. He stole my bike. I saw him do it. Not only did he steal my bike, but he rode it right to the convenience store and held them up by gun. It wasn't a real gun, but they didn't know that. I, I accuse Jared before you, Lord. You don't know all the facts, but I do. He says, who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? God's the one who justifies. He's the one who justifies. He says in the next verse, who will separate, I'm sorry, in the next verse, he says, who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Which means on judgment day, the only voice that's going to matter is that voice of the intercessor, is the voice of your high priest, is the voice of Jesus. And here's something else. Jesus says in John chapter 5 that God gave the judgment to him. He's been handed the authority to judge. And he says in that same chapter, the one that believes in me has passed from judgment into life. Oh, it's so good. How good is that? So on judgment day, how are we going to feel? Are you going to be freaking out? Because here's what he says. You have been justified. Your high priest is standing there interceding at the right hand of God in the place of judgment for you. You know, so many times when we hear judgment, we cringe, especially in our culture. They hear judgment, it's terrible, right? Stop judging me. But come on. Judgment's only a bad thing if you did something wrong. Isn't it? You only hate judgment when you've been doing something wrong. You know, I get suspicious of people that hate the police. They're generally not people that are doing everything right. Why are you so scared of the police? Well, I understand that not every policeman is perfect. We've got pretty good policemen here. Well, I'd say so. Nobody's perfect, but they're doing a good job, and we need to pray for them. If you're so scared of the police, i got to ask you, why? Because <laughs> either you look like that serial killer, or you have a habit of breaking the law. 
just, people go, you know, I don't like to think of God as my judge. I like to think of him as my friend. Tell you what, I like to think of him as my judge too. You know, if you've done something wrong, you don't want to look at the judge. But you know what? If you've got justice coming your way, you want to look at the judge. If somebody ripped you off and they need to pay you back and the judge is the one who's going to make them pay you back, you like the judge because you're now on the right side of the law. I want him to fight for my justice. I want him to stand up for me. You know, Daniel in the Old Testament, his name means the Lord is my judge. And he wasn't walking around going, oh, that's a terrible name I have. Change it, please. Babylonians, thank you. I'll take that name. Uh, My name means the Lord is my judge. I constantly go around feeling condemned. No, to him, his parents named him that. That was a good thing. That means the Lord fights for you. He stands up for you. He defends you. And when Daniel was in the lion's den, you better believe as a righteous man paying for a crime he did not commit or shouldn't have been a crime rather, you better believe he's happy that the Lord is my judge. That's a good thing. So what's going to happen for believers on judgment day? If he says, your sins I will remember no more. In fact, 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul, well, I mean, it's it's all through the New Testament. But it's referred to that, uh, the, the, the scripture, I should say it's in Romans 4, the scripture that says, Blessed is he, and he's quoting from the Old Testament, who says, whose sins will not be brought into account. Blessed is the one whose sins will not be brought into account. And yet a little bit later, he says, we'll all give an account. In in Romans chapter 14, he says, we'll all give an account. But before that, he said, blessed is the one who says, my sins won't be taken into account. So on judgment day, we're going to have to give an account for something, but you know what's not going to be brought up? Your sin. And that's because of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not saying that because I'm trying to make you happy. I'm saying that because it says it all through the scripture. And I just don't have a, I don't find it easy arguing with the scripture. Nor would I want to, right? So what in the world are we going to do on judgment day? If, if sin's not the issue, if Jesus has paid the price for our sin, God is not all of a sudden okay with sin. You know that, right? He, he hates sin, and that's why he punished it severely in Christ Jesus. Jesus did. Somebody is paying for your sin. It's just not you. Jesus paid completely. You look at the punishment that he paid on the cross. God did not go easy on sin. He punished it severely in Jesus Christ. And so on that judgment day, it's not that somebody got off scot-free. It's somebody did pay the punishment, and that was Jesus. So I'll say it again. What's going to happen? What, what are we doing there? We are going to have to give an account. He said in 2 Corinthians 5, we're giving an account. So what does that mean? Well, if you look all through the scripture, in fact, turn to 1 Corinthians 3. We find out that as believers, your sin has been covered and you've been sanctified, you've been justified by the blood of Jesus. Jesus has paid the price for that. So what am I doing on judgment day? What are we talking about? There are going to be things we're not all equal on judgment day. As far as justification, we are. But as far as rewards, we're not. You know, the scripture talks about differences in rewards. Did you know that? The Apostle Paul said it several times. And the phrase 
reward and the phrase suffer loss shows up. 1 Corinthians 3, and I'll try to get this through this quick. 1 Corinthians 3 says in verse 11, For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it, because which day are we talking about? That day. The day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. Hey, that's cool. So on that day, if you've got something that stood and is still standing, there's a reward for you. Well, that's happy. Then he says this. He says he'll receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself, listen to this, he himself will be saved, yet so is through fire. In other words, he'll be saved. But everything he ever did in life didn't count for anything. So that tells us it matters what you do in this life. Judgment day is not about sin for you. You're a believer. That sin issue has been taken care of through Jesus Christ. But you will give an account for what you did with that sanctified life that you inherited through Jesus Christ. What did you build on? And I pray that when you stand before him, there will be your life will show fruit that was not temporary and not just for show, but it remained so that you'll get a reward and you'll get a well done, good and faithful servant on that day. Because he says there's going to be people that stand before him. And they're going to say, but look at all the things I did. He's going to say, well, they, they looked good. But either they were built on the wrong foundation or they were built with the wrong stuff. You know, stuff that you build with cheap material goes up fast and cheap. Right? You can build something big real fast. But if it's not built on the word of God, on the foundation of Jesus Christ, it doesn't stand the test of time. It doesn't stand the fire. It won't take the heat. He says, those people suffer loss and go, (laughs) they get saved as though through fire. They themselves are saved, but they've got nothing to show for their life. No, I guarantee you'll still be happy, right? I'm going to heaven. I get to be with Jesus. Not a bad deal. But uh, I'd sure like something to show for my life. Still, I would like something to show. They themselves will be saved as though through fire. He goes on, I don't have time to read it, but you can look it up on your own. He goes on and talks about his life that's been given to God. He says this, he says, if I, uh, if I preach willingly, if I preach freely, if I just do it voluntarily, he says, I receive a reward. But if I, if I, if I just do it because I have to, I still have to preach. I just don't get a reward. I'm just Fulfilling a stewardship. So in other words, the Apostle Paul says, how I, how I carry out the call that God gave me, whether I do it voluntarily or whether I do it because I have to, he says the difference is if I do it voluntarily, freely, and with joy, there's a reward waiting for me. If I do it because I'm forced to do it, there's no reward. I still have to do it. So what does that tell you? Do it with joy. Volunteer. 
Be, serve the Lord with gladness. Don't go grumbling and complaining. Do it joyfully. He talks so much about the rewards that are waiting for him. You could tell this is a man who knows he's got something waiting. He says, I've got crowns waiting for me. I can't wait. He says, and nobody's going to rob me of my crown. He says, I'm not letting anybody rob me. I'm, I, 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 he goes, I, I, you know, I want you to like me. I want you to love me. But the truth of the matter is, I'm only going to try to please one person. And that's him. He says, if I try to please you, I'm not really pleasing him. In Hebrews chapter 13, I'm going to try to, like I said, rush through this because I realize we've been going. Let's talk for a moment about people like me for a moment. Some of these pastors, what we get to do. Not just pastors, but other people who might be in a degree of authority. He says in Hebrews 13 verse 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Uh Uh-oh. Now, not everybody in the room says that, yeah, you're my pastor. I understand that. But for those that would say, yeah, you're my pastor, I got to give an account for the time we spent together, for the time I was your pastor. And he says, let them do this with joy and not with grief. The literal Greek says groaning. I want you to picture me having to stand on Judgment Day groaning when he reads the record. Oh, why don't you tell me about this person? How, how was your time when they were at your church? Oh, do you know why I have to give an account? Because I'm going to be held responsible, not just you. He's going to say, it's not all their fault. Sometimes it is, but sometimes it's your fault. What did you do to change that? What did you do to help them? How did you, did you pray for them? Did you intercede for them? <laughs> and he says, let them do this with joy. Boy, don't you want your pastor, whoever your pastor is, or whoever your pastor will be, don't you want them to stand before Jesus and go, oh, I'm glad you brought them up. They were the joy of my life. Boy, I thank you for sending me that person. They were a blessing to me. He says, Here's the deal. This would be unprofitable for you. If they have to give a groaning, grieving account before the Lord, it's not going to be fun for them, and it's not going to be fun for you. If it's unprofitable for them to have to give a bad report, what's the flip side? If they give a joyful report for you, it's profitable for you. Now, here's the deal. You can say, well, you put a good word in for me. I don't have the choice. I'm standing before the guy that's got instant replay and all through him. He is God. I can't just say, well, you're, you're remembering it wrong. I remember it differently. It doesn't matter how I remember it. He's going to tell me the account. I have to stand there and smile or groan the whole time. So you're getting a picture of the day. It's going to be a day where rewards are handed out. Crowns are handed out. And crowns aren't just fancy hats you get to wear around and say, look at what I got. Crowns symbolize authority. There's going to be people in positions of authority in the next life. And some that get to start back at uh, private again. I want that day to be profitable. I'm not ashamed to say, I, if, if the Apostle Paul can say it, I want to say it. I want to stand on that day and say, I have rewards coming. There was a day in junior high. 
junior high is the subject for so many good stories. There was a day in junior high that I thought I was going to get a lot more awards at the end of the year than I did. <laughs> My own thought of myself was a little bit higher. And I said, Mom and Dad, you got to come tonight. This is going to be the night where I, <laughs> you're going to be so proud of me, so proud. And I didn't get all the awards I thought I was going to get. It was a little embarrassing. They still loved me. But I was a little embarrassed that I kind of hyped it up like it was going to be this big, <laughs> oh, we're so blessed to have you as our son. You know, what did we ever do to deserve you? You're like Stephen Hawking that can walk. You know, this was not, they were not as impressed with me as I was with myself before the awards. But I want to be able to confidently say, yeah, I'm going to be happy on that day. Now, number one, I'm going to be happy because I'm going to ultimately be saved from the wrath of God. Thank God. Scripture says we'll give an account for every idle word. Do you understand what that means? That means he's given you a, a, a mouth which life and death is in the power of the tongue. The power to bless is in your mouth. So he's going to say to you, what did you do with your words? I gave you the same, I gave you that, that tool. I mean, I, I created the world with my words. What did you do with yours? Did you build up? Did you destroy? Did you pluck up? Did you plant? And you're going to get to tell him what you do with your life. And guess what? That sin, he said, I won't recall it. I will not take it into account. I won't bring it up on that day. But I do want to be able to say, something remains from my life. I didn't just work for nothing. Now, let's wrap it up back to 2 Corinthians 5, and let's see what the ultimate point is here. We all are going to be laid bare before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one might be recompensed, rewarded for his deeds in the body according to what he's done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, this isn't being scared of God, but this is rather having a godly reverence and honor and respect that's due his name. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. So he says, we're persuading men, but then he says, but, we are made manifest to God. In other words, our, we're preaching to people all the time. We're trying to persuade to people all the time. But ultimately, we are not doing what we do so that people can see us. We're not trying to please people. We're persuading them, but what we do, we don't do just for them. We're made manifest before God. We're uncovered before God. And I hope that we're made manifest also in your consciences and I believe this is a mark of a good minister, of a good leader, somebody who says, I am as you see me. And ultimately, I'm not living my life to be seen by you. I'm living my life to be seen by God. But I do pray that my life is made manifest before God and made manifest in your consciences, that you can say, there's a man who lives out, there's a woman who lives out what they believe. He says this, we are not again commending ourselves to you, but we are giving you an occasion to be proud of us so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. Do you see what he's saying? There are apostles who are real proud about their appearance, but not about what they're really made of. There are apostles who try to present, there were preachers who were trying to present a front to people, trying to make themselves look good to people. And his whole point in the context of this chapter is, it won't matter. Because 
on that day and on this day, we are laid open before God. It really doesn't matter if we're trying to put on a show because that's going to be seen for what it really is. He says, you got people who take pride in appearance, but I know that's not what it's about because ultimately, when we stand before the judge, he's going to see it all. And we're going to give an account for the stuff that really mattered. So he says, don't fall for the show. Don't fall for the flash. Don't fall for the, the performance. Because we're all laid bare before him. We live our life to him, not to each other, but to him. And I pray that we're made manifest to your consciences, that you can say, yeah, there's somebody who's living out their relationship with Jesus. There's somebody whose fruit backs up their talk. This is a sobering thought, but it's, a, it's an exciting thing. He's really put the, the emphasis back where it should be. And I, I, I believe that as much as we are excited that people are coming to the Lord and people are, you know, happy and people are enjoying services or enjoying a conversation with you, can I tell you, the one you're really trying to impress, I shouldn't say trying to impress, but the one you're really living for, the one you're really wanting to please is the one who sees it all. He's the one we're living for. He's the one we preach for. So while we persuade men, we are laid open before God. Let's stop living a life that puts things in a corner and says, maybe maybe this is the part I want God to see. This is the part of my life I want people to see. Why don't we just embrace the fact that we've been born again, that Jesus died and rose for us, that we've been given a new reality, a new self, a new life. We've been given a new spirit, and let's live from that spirit and quit pretending that we're hiding certain things behind the bush and just be open before God and say, I want to live a life that you can look at and say, that's a life that's going to be bragged about in heaven and not on earth because the life that's bragged about here is only bragged about for a little bit but the life that's applauded in heaven that's the life that's going to matter that's what really matters whether or not people like us whether or not people are impressed is not the issue we live to him we live for him and to him the one who sees all the one who knows you and yet loves you. So as we close tonight, I want you to bring home these thoughts. Number one, I want you to, as John says, I want you to have confidence in the day of judgment. Perfect love casts out all fear because fear involves punishment, right? So here's the deal. I want you to know that you know that you know that you know that when you stand before the king, you stand righteous through Jesus Christ, that you will stand justified by his blood. This is what separates Christianity from every other religion. This is what separates true, the true gospel from every other gospel is whether or not the faith rests in him or the faith rests in us. Our faith is in Jesus. Our hope is in him. Our righteousness is in him. It's a free gift of righteousness that we've received. Remember, only a few chapters earlier, he said in chapter 3, he said, if the ministry of condemnation had glory, how much more 
does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. We preach righteousness by the blood of Jesus. And I tell you, I want you to stand with confidence about that day. I don't want you to cringe when you hear judgment day. I don't want you to think of Arnold Schwarzenegger. I don't want you to think of bad things. I don't want you to be fearful. I want you to think of what Jesus did for you so that you could stand with your head held up on that day. But I also want you to think about that day and think about what's going to stand at the end of my life. What will, I be, what will we talk about when I stand before the king? What, what have I been building with all my time and all my energy and all my money and all my, just all my life? What have I been building? Have I built it on the foundation of Jesus? Have I built it with the right materials? Because on that day, I don't want it all to go away. I want it to remain. I want it to be rewarded. I don't want to just stand there and go, well, <laughs> thank God I'm saved from hell, but uh, there's nothing else here. I want my life to mean something. And whether or not you had 10,000 friends on Facebook is not going to matter to Jesus. Whether or not people gave you awards on this planet is not, not going to matter. Jesus said to the Pharisees, he said, people applaud you guys. They love you. He said, you already have your reward. You have your reward. He said, you have a reward on this earth because what you're looking for is people's applause. You've got your reward. But what does that imply? That implies that for those of us that are not seeking the approval of people, there's a reward waiting for us up there. When you're seeking people's applause, you've already got your reward. When you're seeking God's, it's waiting for you and it lasts forever. I want you to have an answer for why you have hope. Do you have hope? You guys have hope? Right, do you have hope that you're going to be able to stand confidently on the day of judgment? Yeah. Why? Why? Where's the hope? It's in Jesus. It's his blood. It's that sacrifice. It's your faith in him. If you have no hope there, you need to examine your heart and analyze what you've been believing because that is the foundation of Christianity. I mean, we don't have anything else if we don't have that. We're lost. Thank God faith produces works. Thank God a good tree produces good fruit. I believe there'll be fruit in your life. But thank God it begins with faith in him and him alone. Faith in his sacrifice. Faith in his blood. Faith in his covenant. Faith in what he said.